Let's pick up where we left off. We're in Genesis chapter 18. We are going to be starting in verse 16. If you remember a couple weeks ago, uh, the Lord appeared to Abraham. Abraham was in the door of his tent. Uh, Abraham's address is the uh, Oaks of Mamre. That's pretty much where he lived and he had since Genesis chapter 13. And uh, so the, the Lord appears to him. Abraham. It says that Abraham looks up his eyes and he sees three men standing in front of him, which is a great picture of the Trinity. Uh, but as it turns out, it's Jesus and two angels standing in front of him. And the Lord was stopping by one of two stops, as it turns out, that he was making. He was stopping by to affirm his promise once again, not so much to Abraham this time, uh, but to Sarah. Hey, Dan. Oh, never mind. Uh, not so much with Abraham this time, but with Sarah. Because it was Sarah who still needed a little boost of faith concerning the promise of having a child when she was you know, 90 years old. Um, Abraham, though, was uh, waiting expectantly at the door of his tent. It seemed like Abraham was expecting someone, or Abraham was expecting something, or at least he immediately knew that when the three men appeared in front of him, they were men of importance because of how quickly he responded to the men as soon as he saw them, right? So Abraham was living with this exciting feeling that something great was going to happen soon, right? Because when you're expectant, you're, you, you, ready, you ready yourself and you're, you wait patiently, right? And you hope for that expected outcome. And so you know, he ran to meet them. He quickly had a meal prepared for them. He stood by to serve them as they ate the meal. Right? He was expectant of something divine, a divine message or something that these men had brought. He, he knew something was up. Right? Now Sarah, she didn't have the same response. Sarah was in the tent. Uh, she overheard the men speaking to Abraham. And when the Lord affirms the promise once again to Abraham about, I will be back a year from now at this time, and Sarah will have a child. Sarah laughs. Right? She laughs to herself. She laughed inside, it says, in the Bible. And of course, that's when she learned that the men outside weren't just mere men. Because the Lord says, why did Sarah laugh? And Sarah, of course, is like, uh, I didn't laugh. It wasn't me, right? She knew right then that these were no ordinary men. Now, as it turns out, these three men have another stop to make, right? They didn't just come to have an encouraging and affirming barbecue meal with Abraham and Sarah. Uh, and so that's what we're going to read about today. And the verses that we're going to look at, look at this morning, these verses are foundational to the hope that we have concerning the last days, right? These verses are foundational to the hope that we have concerning the wrath of God, concerning the righteous judgment of God. These verses are some of my favorite verses in the book of Genesis with about what we are going to see this morning. So we're going to start at verse 16. Genesis chapter 18, verse 16, through the end of the chapter. And it says, Then the men set, set out from there, and they looked down towards Sodom, and Abraham went with them to set them on their way. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? 
seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. And then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me, and if not, I will know. Verse 22. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. And then Abraham drew near, and he said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose that there are fifty righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the fifty righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be it that, that from you shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom fifty righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. I, I who am but dust and ashes, suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy, destroy the whole city for a lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. Again, he spoke to him and said, suppose forty are found there. And he answered him, for the sake of forty, I will not do it. And then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. And he answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. And he said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. And he answered, For the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. And then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again but this once. Suppose 10 are found there. And he answered, For the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word, and I thank you for the encouraging hope that's found in these words. I thank you for the, the hope of your promise that's found in these words. I thank you for the picture of your righteous judgment that's found in this. And I thank you, Lord, for the, what we see here about how you are patient with us and how you want us to draw close. Thank you for this. And I pray, Lord, your words be spoken in Jesus' name. Amen. So the Lord finishes up the meal, and the two men set on their way towards Sodom. Right? The angels set out. And Abraham, as you would expect, because hospitality, you know, there's an extremely strong sense of hospitality in their culture, of course. Abraham goes with them to see them on, on their way, like seeing them out. And if they were in your house, he's going to see them to the door. And the word, the Bible here tells us that the Lord says, you know, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Now, we don't know if the Lord's speaking out loud here. If the Lord's saying this to himself, it's not made clear to us. But, you know, it says that, you know, Lord says, maybe I shouldn't hide this from Abraham. I mean, Abraham's surely going to become a great and mighty nation. All the nations of the earth are going to be blessed by Abraham. I know Abraham. I love Abraham. I have chosen Abraham. Abraham is an intimate friend. And that's one thing we need to remember here. Abraham 
as a friend of God. Abraham and God had a unique relationship. Even though the Bible tells us that we are friends with God, Abraham is the only person who's referred to as a friend of God in that regard. So Isaiah 41.8, you know, but you Israel, my servant Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend. That's the Lord speaking, right? Even later on, the Lord refers to Abraham as my friend, right? And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. That's found in James chapter two, verse 23. Abraham was a friend of God. So they had this relationship and God is, and that's what God's saying here. Should I not hide this from Abraham? I mean, he's my friend. And what do you do when you have friends? You tell them things, right? You have discussions about stuff. Your personal intimate details, you have a close friend probably that you tell that stuff to. This is how I'm feeling, right? This is what's going on right now. So the Lord is saying, Abraham is my personal intimate friend. Should I hide this from him or should I share it with him, right? Abraham was a friend of God. So the Lord then continues and he says this, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is grave, I'm going to hop on down there and check it out for myself just to make sure what's going on. And if I find what's going on, I'm going to take care of it. Right? Which, which, which this lets you know that the Lord hears your cries, right? That reminds me earlier in Genesis in 4.10 with Cain and Abel, when the Lord uh, comes to Cain and he says, listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground, right? Injustice does not go unnoticed by God. He heard the outcry of what's going on in these two immoral cities, Sodom and Gomorrah. He's going down there. He doesn't need to go down there to check it out. He knows exactly what's going on, but he's going to go down there and check it out for himself, right? And so he says this, it would seem that the long suffering of the Lord has been exhausted in the case of Sodom and Gomorrah. You know what I'm talking about if you're parents, right? There's that point where you, your kids have just crossed the line and your patience with them is now exhausted, right? It's a little different here because we're talking about the Lord's righteous judgment and we're not righteous and we're not judges. But you understand that line. It would seem that the long-suffering of the Lord has been exhausted in the case of Sodom and Gomorrah. Their judgment is drawing near. The Lord himself is going down to check it out. Right? So the two men, the two angels, they turn and they head towards Sodom. But where's Abraham? He's standing in front of the Lord. It's almost as if Abraham is like, he hasn't said anything yet, but he's possibly overheard what the Lord has said. And, and the two men are heading down, but Abraham stands in front of the Lord. I'm not ready to let you go yet, Lord. I've got something to say, right? He's standing in front of the Lord. It also tells you that the Lord isn't trying to push Abraham out of the way. Like, I've got somewhere to go, buddy. You're in my way. I'm the Lord, right? You're Abraham. I love you. Move, right? But he didn't. He stands there. He's waiting on Abraham. Because he knows Abraham's heart, right? He knows when you got something on your mind. He knows that Abraham has concerns about what he's about to do, right? And what unfolds here in these next verses is one of the most fascinating and remarkable conversations that you will find in the Bible between the Lord, God, and man, right? Between, I mean, this is a conversation between two friends, the Lord God and Abraham. 
It's a frank and open conversation between Abraham and the Lord, and it stands as an example for us that we can bring anything to the Lord. And he will patiently listen, but not just listen. He will address our concerns, right? And it needs to start exactly like this. I want you to pay attention to the picture here. This is how your conversation needs to start with the Lord, right? The first thing you need to do, right? It says, verse 23, then Abraham drew near. That's the first thing you need to do. You need to step towards God. You need to draw near towards God. That's the first thing that you need to do. It says in some translations that Abraham stepped forward. He approached God. You want to know what's on God's heart? You want to know what's on God's mind? You want to understand God's will? Step forward and approach God. Right? The Hebrew word is nagash. It's an intimate term. It's used for husbands and wives, right? The wife drew near the husband. The husband drew near the wife. But in this case, it's used as a term of worship. It's a picture of worship. But worship starts with drawing near to God. Abraham had an intimate and a close relationship with the Lord. Abraham is a friend of God. Abraham draws near to God. And then Abraham asks him this. Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? This entire conversation is based around that first question, okay? Will you indeed sweep away? Will you indeed destroy the righteous with the wicked? Everything that Abraham asks here has to do with that question. Will you indeed destroy the righteous with the wicked? Right? Because either, like I said, either the Lord was speaking to himself out loud and Abraham overheard it, or Abraham just knew the Lord well enough that when the Lord said, I'm stepping down to Sodom to check out the outcry for myself because their sin is grave, that Abraham knew exactly what the Lord meant. I know the Lord well enough to know that what he means is he's stepping down to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah because he's a righteous judge, right? He's going down to Sodom to see for himself because their outcry was great, their sin is grave. And, but Abraham is worried. Wait a minute. Lord, hold on. I know what you're up to. I know what you're doing. Now notice he, he's not asking the Lord to explain himself. You're going to do what? Why? How dare you do that? That doesn't fit my belief concerning righteous judgment. I don't think that sounds like justice to me. Right? He's not, he's not asking the Lord to explain himself. He's not saying why. Why are you doing that? Why are you going to go down and destroy him? Abraham knows why. <laughs> Abraham knows that God's a righteous judge, and he understands the city. He lives near them. He's not that far away from Sodom and Gomorrah. He understands how immoral and wicked the city is. So he's not asking why. He just says, wait a minute, Lord. There could be righteous people living in those cities. There could be righteous... I don't know. Right? Only person Abraham knows about is Lot. And he never asks about Lot. He doesn't say, what about Lot? What about my nephew? Wait a minute, don't go down there yet. Get my nephew out. He never says that. He says, Lord, what about the righteous? There may be righteous people living in those cities, right? I mean, I only know about Lot, but maybe there's, <laughs> maybe there's more, 
It's also possible that Abraham thought, well, am I going to allow Sodom and Gomorrah to be destroyed and not speak one good word about them? I know they're wicked cities, but are you sure? This is what I believe. I believe that Abraham knew exactly what the Lord was going to do, understood God's heart in this matter, right? He knew God. He was a friend with God. And he knew that the Lord could not destroy the righteous with the wicked. That's, he's basically saying that in his conversation with God. Right? He knew this because he was a friend of God, because he had a relationship with God, because he had experienced God, and he understood the character of God. I mean, when you look at how he refers to the Lord here in verse 25, for example, he says, Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be it that from you shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just. He understands the character of God. He just called him the judge of all the earth. You don't know that unless you have a relationship with God. You haven't come to terms with that unless you actually have this relationship with God where you understand who he is. He understood that. He's saying, you're the judge of all the earth. You're going to do what's just, right? Some people say that he's reminding God of his character. God, have you forgotten <laughs> who you are? He, he's not reminding God of his character for God's sake. God hasn't forgotten. He's reminding God of his character for his sake. This is who you are, right, God? You're a just, righteous God, the judge of all the earth. So you're not going to judge the righteous with the wicked, correct? You're not going to do that, right, God? He understood who the Lord was. He understood that the Lord is salvation and that the Lord is a judge. Right? Psalm 9.8, he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the people with uprightness. Psalm 50, verse 6, the heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is a judge. Isaiah 33, 22, for the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. He will save us. Right? He's salvation, and he is a judge. James 4.12, there is only one lawgiver and one judge who is able to save us and destroy the Lord. Abraham knew these things. He knew that. And so he knew that putting to death the righteous with the wicked would go against God's character. He knew that. But here's the thing. He may have had that understanding, but he wanted to make sure his understanding was correct. Right? I understand what your character, who you are. I am correct, right, Lord, in my thinking that you are not going to judge the righteous with the wicked. You're not going to do that, are you? Lord, just... I'm, I need some clarity. I want to see the fine print, right? It does say in there somewhere, right? You're not going to judge the righteous with the wicked. There's no loophole or something that I'm missing that says, well, yes, that's how I normally do things. But in the case of Sodom and Gomorrah, sorry, they're such a wicked city that if you're living in there, your luck ran out. I do things differently that way, right? No, right? So he approaches the Lord with a bold and a persistent humility here. Lord, I just want to seek you out here in this matter. I want to know your will. I want to understand clearly before you leave. What are you going to do? You're not going to judge the righteous with the wicked, are you? See, some are 
this is where it gets a little tricky because some people will teach here that Abraham is trying to save Sodom. He's trying to save Sodom and Gomorrah. Right? He was bargaining for their lives as if this was a negotiation with the Lord. Are you sure you want to do this? Can't you spare them? I mean, you're merciful too, right? Some say he was interceding. Matter of fact, my Bible right here says, Abraham intercedes for Sodom. Right? Your Bible may say that as well. But intercession in my dictionary implies that he's trying to get a different outcome. He's trying to change God's mind. Some people will say that. Some people say that in these scriptures right here, Abraham changed God's mind concerning judgment with Sodom and Gomorrah. Right? This is an example of you know, intercessory prayer, or this is an example of you know, him negotiating with God or intervening on the behalf of Sodom and Gomorrah as, as if Abraham was a skilled negotiator. And he doesn't want to see them destroyed. I say they're, they're wrong. I say they're wrong. And the reason I say they're wrong is, well, there's a couple of reasons. One is that God doesn't change. And if this was intercession, then Abraham failed because God destroyed the city. Right? God never, Abraham never changed God's heart. He didn't change God's mind. There was nothing that God was going to do that Abraham changed at all. Malachi 3.6, for I, the Lord, do not change. Right? Numbers 23.19, God is not a man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said it? Will he not do it? James 1.17, for every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Guess what? God does not change. He is unchanging and he is unchangeable. Right? We call that his immutability. He is immutable. You can't change God. You can't change his mind. He is God. He is sovereign. He is just. He is righteous. He is merciful. He was going to do what he had already planned and set out to do, no matter what. Right? He's all-knowing. He's all-powerful. God is everywhere. He's eternal. He's the beginning and the end. He's the first and the last. Right? The bottom line is that God is consistent. He is consistent in his holiness and in his righteous judgment, and in his sovereignty, and in his grace, and in his love, and in his mercy, he is consistent. So Abraham didn't change a thing. Right? His, God's holiness did not waver one iota. Oh, let me think about that, Abraham. Right? You, you bring up a good point, Abraham. Abraham never changed God's mind concerning anything that he was planning on doing. He did not change one thing. Guess what? God was never going to destroy the righteous with the wicked. Never. Even before Abraham brought it up, that was never God's plan. It was never God's plan. Because God does not change, because of his unchanging righteousness, he must treat the righteous differently from the unrighteous. He has to. If someone repents, guess what? God forgives. Think of Jonah and Nineveh. God didn't destroy that city. Why? Because they repented. The problem was in Jonah. He didn't want to go there and give them the good news so that they would repent because he said, they don't deserve it. They're a wicked and terrible city. And there's no way I'm going there to give them any good news at all. Just fry them and get it over with. But he went. 
Finally, they received the good news and they repented. And God didn't bring judgment down on them because they repented. Right? If someone repents, God forgives. If someone refuses to repent, God judges. He's not going to change. God does not change. He is unchanging in his nature. He is unchanging in his plan and his being. There is no other way for him to be. Yet Abraham had this burden concerning anyone who was righteous within the two cities. I mean, Abraham didn't, he had an understanding, but he didn't have a completely clear understanding. He wanted God to clarify it for him. He wasn't asking for mercy concerning Sodom and Gomorrah. He was concerned about God's righteous judgment. He was concerned about the righteous in the city. And so persistently, but not presumptuously, right? Abraham has this conversation with God and he works the numbers down, right? God, I just got a question. What if there's 50 righteous people in those towns? And God says, I'm not, I'm not going to judge the righteous with the wicked. If there's 50 righteous people, I won't destroy the cities. Okay. God, you got one more second? What about 45? What about 45 people? Yeah. I mean, that's close to 50, right? What about 45 people, God? If there's 45 people in those cities, I won't destroy them. Okay. What about 40? Is 40 a good number? What about 40, God? I mean, can I keep asking? Is it all right? Don't smite me. <laughs> what about 40 people? If there's 40 people, I'm not going to destroy those cities. Okay. What about 35? 35, I won't. 30? 30, I won't either. 20? 20, I won't do that either, Abraham. Uh, Lord, I don't want to keep asking. You probably think I'm a nag, right? Please don't, don't kill me. I'm, dust, I'm, I'm but dust and ashes in front of you, Lord. I understand who you are. You're the judge of the entire earth. What about 10? Is 10 a good number? Right? What about 10? If there's 10 righteous people in those cities, Abraham, I won't destroy them. And Abraham doesn't go any farther. Possibly the Spirit of God stopped him at that point. You don't need to ask anymore, Abraham. And Abraham then left it in God's hands, understanding that God was a righteous judge and God was going to do just. Okay, I just got to leave it with you and trust you, right? Yes, trust me. I will do justly. Okay, Lord. Ten happens to be possibly the number of Lot and his extended family, right? Lot and his wife and his kids and their spouses and his unmarried daughters and etc. Somehow that counts up to ten somewhere, right? Only four people were dragged out of that town by the angels before judgment came down. Lot, his wife, and his two unmarried daughters. And only one of them was righteous, and that was Lot, which is a different teaching, and I'm not going to go down that road. But, but Abraham just needed to know. He just needed to understand, right? And the Lord tells Abraham, listen, if there's just 10 righteous people, I'm not going to destroy the city. And we know, and we'll get into it next week as we go into Genesis 19, but guess what? The Lord destroyed the city, which means there wasn't 10 righteous people in there. But, and he, but was never God's intention to judge the righteous with the wicked. He's going to pull the righteous out. Right. See, Abraham's prayer here, if, if, if you want to call it that, Abraham's question to the Lord, he, he has to approach the Lord 
And it has to come under the will of God. It has to conform with the will and the character of God. Right? So what basically Abraham had to end with was, well, your will be done, Lord. Your will be done. Right? Help. I just need to understand. The reason I asked was I just need to understand your will <laughs> on these matters. I just need to understand. I mean, Sodom and Gomorrah were exceedingly wicked cities. We'll get more into that next week. I mean, but they were given over to sexual practices that were contrary to nature. I mean, do the words sodomy and sodomize mean anything to you? They come from Sodom. These two cities were proud of their immoral and sinful lives. They did not try to hide it, and they were not repenting for it. Lot's family was not immune from this either, as we will find out as we go through. They were infected by this immoral living as well. And we know the wages of sin is death. And beyond death is an eternal hell. Because when man rejects God and refuses to repent and turn away from the sin and forgiveness, as it tells us in Romans 1, God will give them up to their lusts, and then he will give them over to their lusts. He will allow them to corrupt themselves just as they want to do. He will let them do whatever they please to do to their detriment, to their dishonor, and in that then they will bring judgment upon themselves. Yet if there was any basis within the righteousness and the holiness of God within his sovereignty to enable him not to bring judgment down on a city or a person, he would have done it. Do you understand? And God will wait as long as possible. Because God is not willing that any should perish, as it tells us in 2 Peter. God wishes all men to be saved, as it says in 1 Timothy, right? He has no pleasure in the death of the wicked, as it tells us in Ezekiel 33. None. So he waits as long as possible. Way longer than any of us would have waited if it was left in our hands. Right? If judgment was left to us, that city would have been wiped out years ago. God waits to the last possible second. I gave them every chance to repent of their sins and turn back. So in the end, Abraham just has to leave this in the hands of the judge of all the earth right, by faith. Trusting that the Lord's going to do right. Trusting that the righteous will not be destroyed with the wicked. And after Abraham has said his peace, the Lord goes his way, and Abraham goes back to his place. And the Lord heads on down to Sodom. So what does this all mean for us? Where's the hope in this for us? Well, I said that this is essential for us, right? especially in the days that we live, as we get closer and closer to the day of the Lord closer and closer to the coming wrath. What does this mean for us? Well, we see the character of God in relation to his church in the last days. That's what we see. We need to understand that God has a plan. He's still on the throne. The magnitude of what is happening on earth today is not lost to God. He hears the outcry. He knows the evil and the wicked and the lawlessness that's going on. It's not lost on him. And there is hope. Right? Our hope is found in the fact that he will not judge the righteous with the wicked.
right? For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, as it says in 1 Thessalonians. This is a picture of a pre-tribulation rapture. As we go through the next chapter, when, when we see the angels go in and pull out Lot and his wife and his two unmarried daughters, that's what we're seeing. You are not destined for wrath because of your relationship with Jesus. He's going to pull you out before that comes down. And we can make hope in that, right? We have hope in the fact that God will remove us. We remove the church before any of that happens. Just like he removed Lot and his family before the fire and the sulfur rained down down. There's this Isaiah 26, verses 19 through 21. Interesting verses. If you've never read them, I'm going to read them to you right now. It says, Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. For your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. Come, my people, enter your chambers and shut your doors behind you. Hide yourselves for a little while until the fury has passed by. For behold, the Lord is coming out from his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for iniquity, and the earth will disclose the blood shed on it and will no more cover its slain. But where are you? Hidden away. Safe. Right? You're safe. The Lord's coming. He's coming out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. We know this in 1 Thessalonians, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command and with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first and we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. And then it ends with, therefore encourage one another with these words. That's our encouragement. That's our hope. The Lord has a plan. He's not going to judge the righteous with the wicked. And you can stand on that. You can hold that firm. That should give you joy and peace, understanding that everything, the craziness that you see in the world today, the Lord is coming down to clean it up, but you won't be caught in the mess. The bridegroom is returning for his bride. He's not going to leave you an orphan. He is preparing a place for you in his father's house, and he is coming to take you with him. Right? Listen, the world that we live in today They've had the message of the gospel, of the good news of Jesus Christ. They've had that, they've been, that, that's been testified to them and explained to them and shown to them concerning his death and his resurrection. They've had that truth for a long, long, long time. There will be no excuse for them if they refuse to accept it. We're living in a world that has seemingly rejected the word and is descending more and more daily into a world of lawlessness and corruption, etc. But guess what? Jesus is returning, and he's coming to judge the living and the dead. He's not going to destroy the righteous with the wicked. This is what it looks like, Revelation 19. And then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. But, and he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and by the name, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God, and the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepresses of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We won't be here in, on the ground in that sense when that day happens. 
we're coming with the Lord. Right? You're going to be riding one of those horses. You're like, I better get some practice in. So, for us, there's a couple things. One, our intercession, if you will, our prayer for the unbelievers, for those lost, is not to change God's mind concerning anything. Because we can't change God's mind. In reality, our intercession is to draw us closer to God. Right? Because that's what it starts with. It all starts with drawing closer to God. Unless you draw near the Lord, you will not have a full understanding of His will or of His purpose, either for you or for those you're praying for. You won't. What the Lord does or how the Lord does it may seem wrong to you. It may seem harsh. It may seem completely confusing as it does to those out in the world who don't understand God, who don't understand his righteousness and his holiness, who may have a small sliver of an understanding of what they think God is like, but they can't apply that to what they see because they haven't drawn near to God. And you won't either unless you draw near to God. You want to understand his will and his purpose about what's going on in the world right now and what that means for you right now and, and how it's going to turn out. You want to have a clarity on that. You want, to have, you want to be assured of things. Draw close to God. Draw close to God. Right? You got questions? You want clarity? You want to understand more? You want to understand more completely? Draw close to God. You stand in front of him now. Draw close to him. Right? Draw close to him. Draw near the Lord. God's word says that through our faith in Christ, we can come boldly and confidently into the presence of God. Are you confident enough to approach God? Are you confident enough to have this type of conversation with the Lord like Abraham did? Are you confident enough to say, hey, Lord, I got uh, some questions. I don't quite understand. I don't want to be a nag, but this could be a while. Right? Let's go over this. I've made out a list. <laughs> Start with number one. Paper unfolds and rolls across the ground. You know, I got, and the Lord's got, like, I got time. What do you want to know? Because the Bible tells us that God wants to tell you. But you've got to draw near to him. You've got to draw near to him. You've got to seek him out. Hebrews 4.16, let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Right? 1 John 5.14, this is the confidence which we have before him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Right? James 4.8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Right? Cleanse your hand, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. In your humility, be persistent. God handles it. <laughs> You're not going to bother him. You're not nagging him like a little child. He's not going to swat you away like a fly. Right? Get away from me. You with your questions. Right? All you do is nag, 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 nag. He's not going to say that. He's going to say, come closer. I got answers for you. Come on. Give them to me. Be persistent. God is not ashamed of your persistence. You should not be ashamed of your persistence either. Be specific. Be frank. Bring your questions to God. Bring them to God. Draw near to God. And he will answer. Because you need 
to know certainty, certainly, with certainty, something like that, you know, exactly about the righteous judgment of God and how that's going to play out because people are going to be coming to you and saying, what's going on? What's going to happen? How's this going to turn out? Am I safe? Can I be safe? Is there any chance at all I can get through this? Because it feels like we're living in the end times. And you can say, I know God. I know how his righteous judgment works. And I know how you can be safe through, Je <laughs> through Jesus. Right? Draw near to God. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this word, and I pray, Lord, that you just continue to give the boldness for us to do just that, Lord, that you just continue to remind us of who you are so that we can continue to draw close to you, so we can continue to know you more and understand you more, and that we won't be afraid, that we will have the confidence to come close when we have questions and say, oh, Lord, uh, I don't understand this quite. Uh, explain it to me. Help me understand you better. And he will. We don't need to be shy. We don't need to shrink back. We need to draw close. So I thank you for that. I thank you for your word and the power and the strength of your word. And I thank you for, Lord, your love and your grace. And that through Jesus, we are declared righteous. And that you will not judge the righteous with the wicked. I thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.